Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Hey, thank you so much for being with us here on the program. Uh, we've been doing this for 13 plus years and uh, very excited about that fact. I just, uh, in our 13th year, turned 60, so I've got another lifetime to live, another 40 years. If you've listened to any of my previous programs, you know I have to outlive my great-grandmother who lived to be 100. So there you go. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. We podcast the programs at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, a lot of other locations. Folks are reposting these interviews. Thank you for doing that. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because not only uh, am I thanking you because you think these programs are that important that they should be reposted, but also it expands our outreach uh, to the general public. And uh, we certainly hope that we can get to the general public, the major republic, the lieutenant pub- republic. Public. Uh, funny, funny, funny. Ha, ha, ha. All right. Well, let me ask you one quick question. Have you been to our guest website? Well, of course not, because you don't know what the website is. We're going to be giving that to you in just a few moments. We're also going to be asking you, if you can, if you like what we're doing and you'd like to support the work we're doing, we would greatly appreciate any support you could give us financially. And that is why we have a PayPal and Patreon account. And we hope that you will go there. And those are for your security as well as ours. Uh, if you support us uh, and, and you can do that any amount, we uh, I'm not particular. Uh, but uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to those who have helped and to those who will help. And with all of that wonderful stuff out of the way. Oh, there is one other thing. This is 2020. You're right. It's the year of perfect vision. We're asking you to go within, to find the answers that you're looking for, to get the guidance, the support, the encouragement, the inspiration, as well as the peace and calm that we all have needed. But especially, as many like to say these days, especially in these times, and quite honestly, we've always been in these times. It's just how, what, what degree of these times we're in to help us to better understand how and why we're reacting to situations and individuals the way we are. We're going to talk about an important guide to seeing ourselves the way others might. Howard J. Ross is my guest. He's the author of Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating. I like that. Navigating unconscious judgments in our daily lives. First of all, let me uh, let me first say I really like you. You just got a great smile on your face. You got a similar hairdo. You must go to the same barber and and you give a damn about yourself and people in general, that you'd want to help them through some of these biases. And to that end, I, I can tell you right now, Howard, I am not biased. In, I, there isn't a biased bone in my body. Is that a true statement or not? Well, first of all, thanks, Richard. I appreciate the introduction. And, and it's really good to be with you. And, and the quick answer to your question is no. Um, <laughs> human, beings, human beings cannot function without bias. We, we, would, we would not be able to survive literally without bias. Um, uh, you know, all bias is at its foundation is an ability for our brain to make very quick decisions based on limited information that's informed by our past um, and and helps us, uh, you know, stay safe, among other things. I mean, so so we, we go outside, we step out off of a curb and we look at that big heavy metal object with wheels coming our way. Um, we don't have to wait to determine what happens when it gets here because we've learned that that's not safe. 
Um, so we're, we're biased to avoiding that danger because it, it, because it could hurt us um, in its simplest form. And, and this is really what the brain does is, you know, we, we learn from the past to make assumptions about the future so that we can move quickly and efficiently through life and keep ourselves safe. Now, that's one aspect of bias, but there is also the bias that is defined by what has become a nomenclature. Echo chambers, echo chambers, echo chambers. And that's all that people will listen to is those chambers where they will hear what reinforces what they claim they believe. Uh, and then I'll add one more to it. In an interview not too long ago, we were talking about belief. And my guest basically said to me, he says, anybody who says that they believe in this, that, or the other thing is lying. Because to believe in something is to believe in a lie. Because it's not based on any fact whatsoever. And I remember back in the 80s, early 90s, when I was working for the Christian station, they claimed they found the ark, uh, uh, Noah's Ark up on Mount Ararat. This was the claim. And I just sat there going, so what? Your belief system, your theology, your philosophy is based on faith, not fact. So what difference does it make if you find the uh, ark that Noah sailed or the ark of the covenant? Your belief system is based on faith, not on fact. And, and I always found that interesting. And yet here we are, 21st century, Howard, and we have people who believe in stuff, but there's pseudo facts. There are pseudo facts coming out through social media, through the regular media, through the institutions that we have, education, science, religion, political, governmental, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to us about that kind of bias. Sure, sure. I think, well, we're, we're in an interesting time. And like you said, I think that various ways we get information has contributed to this. I mean, you know, I'm a bit older than you, um, Richard, you know, I'm going to be 70 in January. Um, but I remember, and I'm sure you do, growing up at a time when, you know, we had three major TV stations, mm -hmm. ABC, NBC, CBS, and they were all basically homogenized. I mean, there was 5% difference in terms of political leaning from one to the other, because um, first of all, because uh, when you had a mass market, you couldn't afford to turn off half your market. So you, you didn't do anything that was particularly provocative or controversial because if you leaned in one direction and did that, you'd lose the other half of your market. So, so that was one piece of it. The other piece of it was we had very different journalistic standards for broadcast media where um, it, was, it was considered to be unethical um, for a broadcaster to, to strongly share their own point of view. I think if you probably remember when Walter Cronkite came out against the Vietnam War, it was seismic yeah. um, that, that Uncle Walter would, would take a position on anything because it was considered to be, um, the time you had, you had editorials was at the end of the broadcast, but the guy with the white tie and the white shirt and tie would come on and say, this is an editorial, and he would, do that. And then, then, of course, 60 Minutes came in and we had the first real example of debating different points of view. Now, if we look at what's happened since cable news, is that you've got cable stations that don't care about the mass market. As long as they can get their segment of the market and get that segment of the market locked in, they're going to be financially successful. And the way you do that is by throwing red meat to your base. So if you're Fox, that means you throw them constant 
you know, stories from the right and constant stories that support that point of view. And if you're MSNBC or many programs on MSNBC, you do the same thing from the left. And that's how you lock your base in. The problem is that it means that we don't have any agreed upon basis for truth anymore. Mm -hmm. During Watergate, for example, when the Washington Post and the New York Times came out with their coverage of Watergate, even if people didn't like it, they basically believed that the Washington Post and the New York Times were doing their best to, to produce honest information. And of course, newspapers today um, still try to do that, although you know more and more we're finding newspapers that lean in one direction or another as well. Now we don't even have the pretense of that. And in some of these stations, 80% of what they're hearing is punditry. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. And I will tell you that, though, I, I, I don't want to lay this all at the feet of this particular president, but I had just gotten into broadcasting. Uh, I went through broadcast school in uh, 1980, a uh, six-month course, and one of the parts of the coursework was that we would file for our third-class license. Mm-hmm. Two weeks uh, after we finished, uh, uh, we went down to uh, mm-hmm. take the test. And we were told, oh, haven't you heard? Uh, the FCC deregulated the third class license and it's no longer available, which really ticked me off because I really wanted that certificate on my wall. But there was something else that was done. And this was following the 1980 election. So we know who the president was, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And I have had this bone to pick with him ever since. Uh even though he's probably one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, you'd sit down and have a nice a beer with him. I remember the, the quote about how he and Tip O'Neill, as, as furious as they got with one another politically, they were good friends, mm-hmm. which was, you know, which is unheard of today. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. the one thing he did get rid of, which I wish they would bring back, and I was actually talking to a very conservative individual, and uh, I asked him if he knew what, the fairness doctrine was he had no clue no clue whatsoever so i told him the fairness doctrine basically said that every broadcast outlet radio or tv and it may have applied to newspapers when they were covering an issue they had to have representatives on if there were only two sides both sides of the issue You could not pander to one or the other. You had to have reps on both sides. That's right. Now, when I asked him how he felt about that, would he be in favor of bringing that back? I was shocked that he said yes. I was absolutely taken aback that he actually said, sure, yeah, we should have that. That should be there. Uh, So Ronald Reagan, though the polarization had already begun because of especially because of the Vietnam War in the 60s and, of course, Nixon in the 70s, that that actually was the, uh, the, the, so to speak, the match that lit the fuse that is what we have today, the polarization. And that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. But I remember being public affairs director, Howard, at at that radio station and Arizona was uh, putting before the state legislature a bill to give gays uh, equal rights. And I wanted to have representatives from both sides. Well, I had one gentleman who was with ex-gays for Jesus. He refused. He said, oh, no way am I going to give the devil equal time. He says, we're not giving the devil equal time. We're talking about a very important piece of legislation. And I want to hear... From both sides. Well, the interview never came off. 
Is that one of the problems is that people just don't, we have become almost genetically polarized. Maybe it's in our DNA now that we're not even willing to sit and listen objectively or is that uh, to listen objectively is that something that we have to learn well i, I don't know about uh, I, you know i'm not sure i don't think it's genetic but i do think we're in a social structure where that's become the norm and i think you know what is genetic is our need to belong our need to fit in with groups mm-hmm. and to, to you know we have our tribes that we're part of and this goes back to you know the very beginning of humanity that if you were by yourself you you had much less of a chance of surviving than if you were part of a tribe of people who could support you and help you protect yourself defend yourself go hunting take care if you were sick or whatever and so you know over time we began to learn um that the, the people who survived were the people who were good at social interaction and the people who tended not to survive were the people who weren't so over time we moved towards that now the challenge is that at the time the in older times um, we we mostly functioned in a bell curve uh, we might say that while you have people who are on the extremes who said, you know, forget pops on that house, I have no interest in that house. For the most part, um, on an issue by issue basis, we would form coalitions or form other coalitions. So I might, for example, agree with you on civil rights, but disagree with you on foreign policy, but agree with you on domestic policy, but disagree with you on gun rights, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and for the most part, that's how it worked. If we think back to the 60s, the times that you were you were just referring to, you know, you had, for example, Republicans who were mostly against for the war in Vietnam, but some Republicans who were against it, like Paul McCluskey and Mark, Mark Hatfield, for example, a couple of senators. Um, you had Democrats who were mostly against the war, but people like Scoop Jackson who were for the war. And, and same thing true for civil rights. You civil rights you had northern Republicans and northern Democrats who collaborated against southern Democrats and southern Republicans. So. Um, so, so it was very much an issue orientation, and it formed this sort of bell curve where most people were in moderate stances in the middle, depending upon where they were. Now we've moved to what I call a dumbbell curve, where everything's on the end and nothing's in the middle. Um, and it's no longer about issues. It's now about identity. It's now you're one of those kind of people. You supported him or you supported her, mm-hmm. and therefore I want nothing to do with you. I have you know, you are, you are beyond contemptible and I will have no interaction with you. And, and, um, and the problem is, you know, we, we end up forcing people back into those camps because if there's no way for people to meet in the middle and they have to choose between A and B, they're going to go to the one that they're more likely there. So this becomes sort of a self-replicating phenomenon of polarization and tribalization that was suffering so dramatically on in our society. Mm -hmm. And we can see now as we deal with COVID that it even forces people to take a point of view that's counter to science. And so not wearing masks now has become a political statement, even though any credible scientist, you know, virtually the entire infectious disease community around the entire world um, uh, knows that this is a way to protect each other. Um, you have people who, for political reasons now, are ignoring that science and refusing to wear masks. Now, here's an interesting fact on that mask that I'm vaguely familiar with. The Japanese regularly wear masks if i'm not mistaken by a lot of the videos and this was before covid okay this has been going on for years i believe the chinese in the same way and of course it's more due to the pollution that they've had say in beijing and so forth but it seems as though the asian countries even uh south korea for that matter they regularly majority of them regularly wear masks when they're moving around outside and yet we have the uh, the argument that the mask becomes a petri dish on your face 
Well, I think you need to start talking to the Asians, to the Japanese, the Chinese, the South Koreans, and find out how much of a Petri dish that really is, because they're still doing it even after the COVID threat has been, I would say, pretty, pretty well contained in those countries right now, or at least in in Japan and, and South Korea. Yeah, well, there, there are a couple. First of all, you're right. Generally speaking, I think Taiwan has been the best country in the oh, world in yeah. dealing with this. And um, Vietnam has been extraordinary. And, and, and there are a couple of factors here. I mean, first of all, I do think that these are countries that um, are very uh, focused on and, and aware of um, the spread of disease. And, and it's become commonplace for people if they've got a cold or um, they're going to a place where people might have a cold to wear a mask. Um, uh, pollution may be part of it, but some of it is also disease prevention. And it's just, it's just become the norm in that culture to do that. But the second, and I think mo- more important factor, is that these are cultures which um, people who study culture call collectivist cultures. And that is that we've got two different structural forms of culture. One are more individualist culture, where the needs of the individual are more important than the needs of the many. The other are collectivist cultures, where the needs of the many are more important than the few. Um, Asian cultures are by their nature more collectivist cultures. And so the notion that we've got a problem here, we all have to come together to solve this problem by protecting each other and putting on masks is very culturally relevant. It's very culturally appropriate. And so, and especially given their experience with SARS not too many, not too many years ago, and, and having had that fresh experience, so I know a bit about this from Taiwan because my brother-in-law has lived in Taiwan for 35 years, is married to a Taiwanese woman, and that's home for him. And he said, as soon as this was announced way back in February, everybody put on their masks, everybody jumped right into social distancing mode, everybody did exactly what was needed, and they've had virtually no cases. I mean, the, the numbers of cases in Taiwan are, are extraordinarily low. Japan has 120 million people, less than one hundredth of the cases that we have here. In America, of course, we have this notion of the individual right is the most important. And so you have people talking about, well, you know, I'm not going to lose my liberty by having to put on my mask um, or social distance. And if you think about this, you know, the the irrationality of it is quite staggering. I mean, because, of course, we make requests all the time of people to give up personal liberty for the good of many. We stop at stop signs. We stop at stoplights. We don't drive any speed that we want. We don't go into public places naked. We wear clothing, you know, urinate in the street, because all of these are are agreements that we have in a civilized culture that the needs of the many are sometimes more important than my specific individual needs. And yet we have people who are not only refusing to do that um, to protect others, but are in fact um, challenging the health and well-being of others by going up to their face in public places and shouting at them and things like this. Um, it's completely irrational behavior, but it's because people have somehow gotten it stuck in their mind that this is what they need to do politically. So there is an aspect of culture in all of this. Yeah. Uh, and obviously we've kind of gone off on a, on a different subject here to, to some degree. But one of the things that, uh, that I have observed is that um, people say, I'm not going to sacrifice my individual rights. And I counter that by saying, well, guess what? I'm an American too, and I have individual rights, but I'm not sacrificing my individual rights. I am actually, actually consciously and intentionally setting my individual rights regarding mask wearing, washing of hands, and six feet social distancing so that I get to have my individual rights in full, hopefully someday soon. 
This isn't about a sacrificial lamb here. This is about exercising individual rights for the betterment of the community. And, and it, that's one of the, and I don't know, maybe that was inculcated in my family because we were a family of eight, six kids and two parents. And yeah, we had our individual rights up to a point because we were living under our parents' roof as the, as the saying goes. But we also took care of each other when it came time to do so. Yeah, and look, Richard. I mean, we, we can see the the you know how bias plays a role in this. So we have a bias towards a particular political point of view, um, and uh, as I said before, it becomes very tribal. So I'm one of these kind of people, and over here, one of these kind of people. We don't do that, right? So as a result of that, we ignore the very fundamental structures that we put in place in our society to give us guidance during these exactly during these kinds of times. So we have we have an entire agency of the federal government at the National Institutes of Health that is dedicated to the study of infectious diseases so that those people can get all the information, the scientific information that we need um, to, to guide us at times like this. And we have somebody who heads that agency, his name is Fauci. And so, so this, is the, this is the person that the federal government of the United States has, has, has identified as the single most important voice around infectious disease in our country. We have an entire structure set up around that. We have an entire agency, a federal government agency called the Center for Disease Control, which is specifically designed to study things like this and give advice to politicians as to the best way to handle them because they're scientists and they study all this stuff. And so the Center for Disease Control and Fauci are the people who we have designated through the structures of our society, through billions of dollars in research and support over, over decades and decades to be the point people in time like this. But when those messages don't fit a political agenda in today's world, we just ignore them and do what we want to do rather than follow the science. And, and this is where bias is actually in, in today's world is life threatening to us. I have heard it said, I, I heard this. I can't remember exactly where those people who choose to hold on to their individual rights to the exclusion of all others are not even Americans. This is what I heard. They're not even Americans. They don't give a damn about other American citizens. Uh, and and I don't know that I would quite go that far, but I, I do know that it's really appalling. And yet, when we have hurricanes, we have earthquakes, we have floods, we have any other kind of natural disaster, the lava flows in Hawaii, for example, People come out of the woodwork to help one another. They're just beyond them. They're, they're, it's beyond the pale uh, that they are there to support and rescue and, and, and help and provide food and clothing and shelter and all of the things that a human being would need uh, in those trying times. Uh, but it's because we aren't looking at those types of elements, I'm wondering, uh, that and maybe because it's being it's going on so long, you know, uh, although, you know, here in Santa Barbara, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a horrific fire, the Thomas fire mm -hmm. that burned yeah. the mountain ranges. And then nobody expected this. Uh, then in January uh, that following year, we had a, a, a massive rainfall that caused a mudslide that took out a good portion of, of Montecito and people just came out of the woodwork. There was a group called the bucket brigade and they rallied and they helped to dig out people's homes and properties and so forth yeah. for no pay. 
They did. They didn't get paid for that. This was all volunteer. And yet here we are today facing the potential. I don't think it's quite that severe yet, but the, if we're in a pandemic, I would say it's not far from an, uh, an extinction event, human extinction event, or at least a, a major population reduction. And nobody seems to care. I mean, there well, are. I, and I, I will tell I, you that Fauci in COVID-19 coronavirus, he is my God. I listen to the man because he knows what he's talking about. Just like what you talked about with that, uh, the, the National Institutes for Health, as well as uh, WHO, you know, the, the World Health Federation, uh, Health uh, Organization, CDC. I, I trust the scientists, okay? Even if they told me, we don't know. But we, we, we just don't. We're doing the best we can. We're trying to figure it out. We don't know. I would take that and say, okay, at least you're being honest with me. Yeah, I think I think one of the challenges is that that we don't understand uh, in this the, the evolution of this particular thing that we don't understand the way science works. I mean, yeah. science, you know, we use the things where if you say something, you have to stick by it. But science doesn't work that way. Science is evolving. So in the early days, for example, of the pandemic, um, they thought that only N95 masks would help people, and if you didn't have an N95 mask, that 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 it was didn't make any sense to wear them and so you know back in late february i think that those messages came out then they realized that actually they were wrong as they got more and more information and more research they realized that wearing a mask any kind of mask just a piece of cloth over your face reduces as much as 50 percent of the particulate to get shared and if both people are doing it that the chances of getting it and, and staying you know six feet apart mm-hmm. chances of getting it become very slim so they changed that well some people who you know who with with often a political agenda say oh you see you don't know what they're doing because they know it's evolved because they learn more they got more data they learn more information but i think all of this speaks to you know what the book is about which is the way the mind makes these decisions and um, we think and the bottom line of the research richard is that we think we're rational as human beings but what we find when we actually study the neurocognitive science and the social science behind it, what we realize is we're actually more rationalizing. That most of the decisions we make center in our emotions um, and what we feel like we want to do. And then we gather information to support that point of view that we've heard. So, so if somebody emotionally wants to support this political point of view that we need to get people back to work, um, what that will lead us to do is to ignore the data that's there that's counter to that. You know, I think I share with you when we were getting ready to go on the air, one of my favorite quotes from John Kenneth Galbraith, the great um, economist who said, most human beings given a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary will quickly go about refuting the evidence. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing that today. I was in a conversation with somebody not, recent, not long ago who was uh, saying that she she refused to wear a mask and i kept pushing her how do you refute the science well she said um as many people are dying because they pass out from wearing masks and fall and hit their heads as they're dying from COVID. now that's obviously you know ridiculously absurd you know comment but but it's a window into how we justify this point of view that we have. We'll gather whatever we can, and if we can't gather anything, we'll just make some stuff up. And and unfortunately, uh, we're getting that exact uh, behavior from leadership, um, which is which is reinforcing that in people's yeah. minds. Well, I want to shift just a little bit here. Um, sure. I want to I, I want to try to present this as apolitical as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, I was never a, a fan of uh, uh, the current president. Actually, on the 15th of June of 2015, uh, when he said the things that he said, I said, I do not want this man as president. 
I did not know what his political agenda was. I didn't know anything about him other than that he was this multi-billionaire who built high-rises and had a TV show and this and that and the other thing. And the reason why I didn't want him as a president was because I didn't want to bully in the White House. Now, we've had uh, presidents who have uh, acted like bullies when it came to diplomacy and politics and so forth. I would say that some would even say maybe Reagan was uh, was a bully at times because he stuck to his guns and he wasn't going to. Uh, I mean, I, I, you might even say uh, when he said, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall was maybe sort of a bully statement of sorts. Um, but I was watching the news the other day. And the story came up, uh, uh, and actually it was showing live, the, um, uh, what was it, the, 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 the rally that was being held at a church in Phoenix. Phoenix, by the way, is my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that even though I wasn't, they weren't actually playing him live, all right? He was there in the background on the stage. You could see everybody not uh, uh, social distancing and so forth. And you know what, what went through me? was a feeling of hurt. I felt like I was being left out. I actually felt almost like I did when I was a kid in school uh, being uh, bullied. And I didn't belong. And unless I changed my way of thinking, they wouldn't let me in the front door because I had a different view. And I couldn't go to this man and say, Mr. President, I need some reassurance here. I need, I need some understanding. I need some compassion uh, and so forth. And I, I, I'm not kidding you. I went from in 2016, um, you know, railing against him and then going through the three phases I went through to finally get to that humanitarian place where I say, what is it that you're so afraid of that you have to behave this way? And then I'm watching this rally and I'm going, I don't belong. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not a part of the group and that, that has got to hurt people. I mean, it hurt me when, when I felt that it's not, it wasn't something that was done to me, but it was an observation of mine. Talk to me, well, talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, look, first of all, I think relative to the whole political issue, I think that, that we have to acknowledge that this tendency towards irrationality occurs on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, you've got you've got people on both the right and the left who are who you know gather whatever information they need, and people make up or send false memes around or send false information around. And, and let's face it, you can go online these days, you can get something that says anything. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you look at some where where the pandemic is concerned, you got you got on one side, you got the the anti-maskers, and on the other side, you have people who are passing around this film. I'm sure you saw called Plandemic, which was complete nonsense completely refuted and nonetheless people were sending that around and those were mostly in my experience people coming from the left so so i don't want to i don't want to give people the impression that this is just one side that does this it's that this notion toward this this lean towards irrationality is true in general in our culture today yeah. and as is the, the the piece that you talked about which is this desire to fit in and belong and so how do i do that well if i can't do that by being moderate because there's no space for moderation anymore if i have to kind of join the extreme to the right or to the left to belong to somebody, then I'll lean to the direction of the one that I feel the most, um, the most comfortable with and, and so we see more and more people who are taking these extreme positions, at least in terms of how they vote. But I think that what it really speaks to at a deeper level is the way human beings make decisions and, and that 
um, you know, we, we see something out there and it occurs for us either as a, a threat or a reward. And, and if you think about it, you design your brain, a brain and evolve it over thousands of years, which would you have the brain likely be more functioning as, uh, you know, a, a, a protection against threat or getting a, a quick hit on a reward coming your way? Well, obviously, threat would be the one you'd lean towards because if you, if you miss a reward coming your way, it's a nice surprise. If you miss a threat coming your way, you're dead. So we're highly oriented towards the negative side. And, and what we've evolved to in our political structure is a system where the threat is all that we hear. And this is not new in history. Demagogues have often used threat. I mean, if you, if you look at Hitler and Mussolini and, and any of the other great demagogues, uh, that, that great, obviously, in a good quality, but, you know, powerful and, and effective demagogues in, in the history of his life, Gene McCarthy, I mean, Joe McCarthy in our own culture you know i've got 57 communists in the state department right that those famous scenes from uh you know from a mentoring candidate um, but they, this is the mindset be scared of them be scared of them and i'm the one who can save you and and um and of course a fear-based culture will drive people more and more and more into this sense of, um, of despair yeah it is uh it, it is unfortunate that this is where we have <laughs> devolved to maybe evolved maybe this is uh as as barbara marks hubbard one of our uh, guests who has since passed on to the the next world shared with us uh, uh that the process we're going through and this was back in 2007 she said this the process we're going through is like the birth pangs of a mother giving birth and boy you and I, uh, uh, Howard, we have no clue as to what that's about, but we can certainly relate to pain. And she says, you're going to go, we're going to go through some very painful periods, but it's part of our, our, our evolutionary process where at the end, at the end, what do we have? We have this beautiful newborn human being that has entered this world to live a life that's going to bring about who knows what, um, so we are we are uh, uh, we are bound uh, to this process, and the process we're talking about is everyday bias, identifying and navigating unconscious judgments in our daily lives. We've uh, done a fairly good job, have we not? I think of identifying bias and what bias is, uh, Howard. Well, actually, actually, no. As it turns out, um, you know, we, we have a good general sense, but we're not very good at identifying bias in ourselves because these these uh, mechanisms that we're talking about, these sort of instinctive mechanisms are, are so subtle and in some cases so habitual that it's more like um, the way we react is like somebody presses E4 on our personal little jukebox and that song begins to play in our head. So when a police officer sees, for example, um, you know, a, a, an African-American man coming towards them, um, they see that through this narrative of racial difference that's part of our fundamental cultural structure. And, and we know that, for example, um, the same person looks bigger, that, um, that um, African-American men look bigger to police officers. When they've done experiments, they said, how tall is this person? They have the police officer look at a white person and an African-American person who are exactly the same height, and they will repeatedly and consistently say that the African-American person was bigger. Um, more dangerous, um, you know, more likely to have a weapon, um, and all of these other uh, assessments that they make, which occur at the moment as real. That person does feel more scary. We also even see where medical treatment is concerned, that, that for example, doctors perceive that African-Americans need less pain medication, even African-American children need less pain medication, because it all fits into this narrative of the big, strong, frightening 
black, especially black men, although increasingly more women as well. And so all of this plays out in terms of every aspect of our life, whether it's the police officer deciding who's the potential dangerous person coming towards them. Um, you know, I, for example, if I was as a, as a white man close to 70 years old, if I was walking through that town, that, uh, that uh, city in Florida with a hoodie on and carrying an Arizona iced tea in my hand, uh, George Zimmerman would never have followed me or called the police like he did with Trayvon Martin, um, you know, because that image triggered something in him. And, but it also shows up every day in our work life. You know, who do I feel comfortable hiring? Uh, who do I feel comfortable giving an assignment to? Who am I assuming is smart or not so smart? Who am I assuming is capable? Um, who am I, am I assuming I'd enjoy working with? You know, all of these determinations are made based on those same kinds of stereotypes about particular group identities we have, whether it's race, gender, sexual orientation, physical appearance, size, body, all of that kind of stuff. So, so we know, for example, that, that there have been studies at five major universities that show that doctors demonstrate bias against patients who are overweight, give them less information, follow up on protocols less um, than they do patients who are of normal weight. But ironically, patients also rate doctors more positively if the doctor is not overweight. So, so we're doing this to each other in that kind of circumstance. So all of these things are part of these mechanisms, these, these sort of blind spots that we have on an everyday basis. And what we're discovering is the more we admit that to ourselves, the more we, we say, yes, of course I have bias, as opposed to being ashamed of it or defensive about it, the more likely we are to be able to work through those biases and come to a more rational conclusion about the person we're dealing with. I have questions regarding navigating this process, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. I'm Richard Dugan, along with uh, Howard Ross. Howard J. Ross has written this book. I think it's fascinating. Uh, Everyday Bias, and it's talking about identifying and navigating unconscious judgment in our daily lives. And I would tend to agree with Ken Burns, who says uh, that an important guide to seeing ourselves the way others might and I think that's uh, extremely important for us to to start taking a look at. And we're going to do more of that here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World with Howard Ross and yours truly, Richard Dugan. Stay tuned right where you are. Tell me your stories. I'll do my best to understand you. And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm joined via Zoom by uh, Howard Ross, who's written a, a very intriguing uh, book in regards to bias, everyday bias, and identifying and navigating unconscious judgments in our daily lives. The thought that came to me regarding this process of navigating, Howard, has to do with um, the difference between our beliefs, our prejudgments that we have grown up with, as you described at the end of the last segment, uh, and the morals and values that we are given or uh, are taught as we are growing up. What's the difference or the similarity between biases and morals and values. Uh, it's, it's, this is a really important distinction. I'm really glad you're bringing it up, Richard, because you know we do have a sense of and look, you know, in our society we see this. We have a particular moral position as society. All people are created equal, right? It was it's written right into our most sacred document. All people are created equal. I actually at the time they said all men are created equal. 
which is in and of itself ironic because we're saying, you know, all men are created equal, but of course we're leaving out half of humanity in that very statement. But, but you know, even putting that aside for a minute. Um, so we say all people are created equal. And yet um, we know that people do have biases and treat some people as less equal than others. The same society that says all people are created equal at the very time that phrase was written was a society in which millions of, of black Africans were being kept and sold as slaves. And so our foundation is that hypocrisy, that our values and our actions are inconsistent with each other. And now we know that we look back at the time, at that time, and we've, we've made correction in, in, in some of our documents. We've removed some of the parts of our constitution that were written to support slavery, or we've amended them, I should say. We amended the part of the constitution that said that only, only men could vote and women could not vote. So we make these changes over time, but nonetheless, we can see that contradiction. And the same thing is true in us as individuals. We can believe about ourselves, and this is where Ken's quote, you know, the quote that you just made that Ken Burns get about the book, where he says that um, it's important not to see oneself in the way that others might. We can see that we believe that we're treating people equally, but what other people see is that we treat one group of people differently than we treat another group of people. But we don't see that about ourselves because the mind self justifies. We justify to ourselves that of course we don't do it with that person because they are, you know, less appealing, more dangerous, less smart, less capable, you know, any of those things that we that we put on. And so, so in a way, this is all um, a constant struggle between the part of ourselves that wants to be live inside of our values and the part of ourselves that deals with this irrational part of our human structure. Now, I'm not talking, I want to be really clear, I'm not talking about the David Dukes or the Richard Spencers of the world, the people who have hung their hat on the hate that they have for other people. I'm, I'm not talking about that. That's a very relatively small percentage of people. After having worked for 35 years with thousands of companies in 47 of the United States and over 50 other countries, I can tell you that very few people wake up in the morning and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, that's mm -hmm. not the way it yeah. happens. We go to work and we, in, in the process of work, we, we try to engage on a daily basis and don't even realize that these, these, you know, what um, one of the scientists who studied this a lot, Nazarene Banaji called mind bugs come into play, this mind bug that says that person is unsafe, this person is better than that person, this person looks smart, this person probably doesn't know what they're talking about, this person looks like they have it all together, this person is just a mess, you know, all these these kind of mind bugs we have that then determine, are we going to hire that person? Are we going to trust that person? Are we going to give that person an important assignment? Are we going to promote this person? You know, all of those factors that are day-to-day -day life experiences that happen in every organization, every job people are in. Mm. You know, and it's interesting how I took the position back when I became a manager for the first time back in the mid-late 80s. Uh, I wanted to hire women. I didn't want to hire men because the industry, broadcast industry, was full of them. And I wanted to have a diversity of voices on the air uh, that would make us sound, I don't know, just it would make us sound, I thought it would make us sound better. It wasn't about demographics. It wasn't about uh, uh, equal rights. It was about how the radio station would sound, how much more, not so much diverse. I mean, I don't consider myself a, a, a civil rights or equal rights activist per se, but I just felt like let's give some of the, and most of the women that I hired, they got what we were doing, not just on a, 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 a philosophical level, but also practical operations level they got what how to do stuff some of the guys it just took a lot longer for them to get it 
which, of course, reinforced uh, the whole philosophy that I learned in grade school, biology, how boys and girls were different, and boys learned differently than girls, and so forth. And, and so I thought, well, let's get some more women in here. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, and it, you know, uh, and, and so I, I, that, maybe I would be guilty of reverse discrimination, but I don't care. Because the women were being discriminated against already because they weren't being given and not given an opportunity to do the kinds of things that the guys were doing. Now, well, also, let's let's look before you get too far. From sure. Point, go ahead. Go ahead. Talk about this term reverse discrimination okay. that you brought into the conversation, because I think a lot of times we, we hear that, you know, that that are we. Um, when we're um, consciously, you know, trying to balance out some of the things we're talking about, that it's quote reverse discrimination, and I, and I want to suggest that there's another way of looking at this. I mean, look, one of the most successful examples of busters of a bias busting that I know is what's happened in symphony orchestras over the last thirty to forty years. Mm-hmm. In 1980, approximately ten percent of the musicians in symphony orchestras around the world were women. It, it, for for centuries, the conversation had been that men are just better musicians than women than women are, and is very rare for women to make it to that level. And that's been true. And, and famous conductors, you know, said that out loud. There wasn't even something that was concealed. It was a fundamental belief that was largely accepted in the music community. Um, but then they started to use some, when you talk about navigating, how do we navigate these biases? Then they started to use some different techniques. So they started to notice, for example, that um, that that for the, for the most part, um, people were invited into these auditions. So the way it would happen is, let's say somebody left the symphony orchestra, the second violin of the symphony orchestra, the conductor would say, I heard the second violin from the Philadelphia symphony orchestra, see if you can get him to come audition. And then he would come and audition, he would get the job. So they started by saying, what if we just open it up for people to send in their digital clips of music and so or, or tapes of music? So people could actually record them, send it in and say, listen to me, am I worth audition?" The second thing they did was they realized that largely one or at most two people, the conductor and the, and the producer, were the ones who made the decision. But they said, that's kind of a small number of people. What if we had a panel of people instead? So we had different sets of people who were listening. But the most important thing that they did was they began to create the process of blind auditions. In other words, they had people come in and audition behind a panel, walking on rugs. You couldn't hear high heel shoes and you couldn't see the musician. So we switched from auditioning the the musician to auditioning the music itself. And then everything started to change dramatically. And now 40% of the people in orchestras, four times what it was just 30, 40 years ago, which is an astonishing amount of growth, are are women. Um, And so, um, in fact, by the way, for for folks who are listening, the, The Voice, the TV show The Voice, where they listen to the music and then turn around, actually comes from this experiment. It was sourced out of this experiment. So, so what we can see in a situation like that is that the assumption, the, the accepted belief was actually false, but that didn't stop it from being reality, just like people actually thought the world was flat until Columbus went out and didn't fall off the end of it. Mm. And, and these kinds of superstitions that get incorporated into our thinking are where our biases live. I wish that the educational institutions would do the same thing. When people apply, uh, they're given a number and their, uh, I don't know, their, their, their scores from their, uh, co- uh, their high school, if you will, if they say they're going to their first college, uh, mm-hmm. are listed, but they're only listed uh, by number as far as the identifier. And so on and so on. Whatever documentation is provided, SAT scores, uh, CTC, 
ABC scores, whatever the, the tests are. That's how it would be done. And whoever got in, got in based upon merit and merit alone. Now we are hearing, this is rather interesting because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement and all of the stuff that's going on. I'm now hearing that they want to bring back affirmative action. And I'm just sitting here going, are you kidding? We're going to go backwards? Well, I think, we, you know, we really need to, we need to adopt that, that method you just described for orchestras, uh, you know, in our, our higher, uh, higher institutions of learning. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, Richard. I want to assume for a minute we've got two kids applying to college. One of them grew up in, um, in uh, Potomac, Maryland. Okay, which is, I'm just using the geography around where I live in the Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. area. Potomac mm -hmm. is the high rent district for those okay. who don't know. Okay, it's, it's a suburban community, very high income. Okay, So he grew up in that community. Father was a doctor, mother was a lawyer, had tutors in his home as he was growing up because his parents were both highly educated. If not, in a minute, they would hire a tutor for him if he needed it. Um, he didn't have to work after school. In fact, his parents forbade him from getting the after school job because they wanted him to focus on extracurriculars to pad up his college resume. So he did, you know, the soccer team and the debate society and ran for student government and went on Habitats for Humanity trips and all of that stuff. He, um, he, when SAT times came around, he had not only to, took a couple of SAT prep courses, but also had a private SAT tutor to prepare him for taking the test and took the test multiple times to raise his score. This is, these are not unusual circumstances in those kinds of high wealthy community, communities. So he ends up with a 4.2 or 4.3 adjusted grade point average and relatively high SATs. Now you've got another young man, same age, same time, grows up in Anacostia, which is a, a low-income part of Washington, D.C. He grows up in a single-parent home. Mom or dad does two jobs to take care of him and his two younger siblings. So he wakes up every morning. He prepares his younger siblings for school, walks them, you know, makes them breakfast, walks them to school, goes to school himself, picks them up after school, takes them to daycare, then goes to his part-time job that he does to help support the family, which, which gets him home at, in time for dinner, serves his, his uh, younger siblings dinner, helps them with their homework, takes care of them until mom or dad comes home at eight or nine o'clock, at which time he can do his homework. And he works, by the way, both days on the weekends to also help support the family. Uh, when SAT season comes, he not only can't afford, but can't take the time to do a prep course. So he does the SAT just one time because he's not going to miss more than one day of work for it. And with all of this, he somehow manages with a 3.7 or a 3.8 and SAT scores that are about 100, 150 points lower than the other job. Now, now, if you look at those two students from the standpoint of the apples to apples kind of way we're describing, you would say one is clearly better. He's got a 4.2 compared to a 3.7. His SATs are higher. He's got all these extracurriculars. The other has none. Very clear. And yet, you know, I could make, a, I think, to make a compelling case that what it took for the one young man to get a 3.7 and to handle all of that responsibility at that young age and still be that successful is pretty darn compelling that this is somebody who's got a remarkable talent to them. So, so the challenge is, you know, how do you balance out these things that come from certain from, for example, systemic racism or poverty and not take that into account. Because if you don't take it into account and you just go to an apples to apples, you know, comparison, then what you do is you continue to perpetuate that same system of systemic racism or systemic poverty from generation to generation. And that I think is the challenge of your face. I just saw my straw house go up in flames. <laughs> <laughs>
And what makes you different than most people is you're willing to admit it. But that's the problem because what happens with most people in a case like that is they'll dig in now and they'll say, well, you're just an idiot. And that's the end of the conversation. No, we stop. We stop listening and even considering our points. And what you have done is part of one of your chapters. Think about thinking, thinking about thinking. That's exactly right. I've heard the term uh, logical thinking, problem solving, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've heard the incredible stories of some folks who are in the minority category who uh, somehow with all of that stuff going on in their lives and getting the 3.8 on their SAT or C, uh, whatever the test is, uh, they manage about 10, 15, 20 years later to be owning a multi-billion dollar corporation doing things they never thought they would ever do. Unfortunately, those stories are probably as uh, far and few between as it gets. And that, well, I think, is part of the problem. Is well, that- yeah, I, think, I think the challenge is that what we do is we take stories like that. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of this talk after President Obama was elected. They were now in a post-racial America because, after all, if somebody could be elected president, that means race is not an issue. But but in fact, it, it doesn't mean that. It just means that one person was extraordinary enough, um, extraordinarily intelligent enough, extraordinarily hardworking enough mm-hmm. to be able to transcend that yeah. and, and get above it. But it doesn't mean that the system changed. No. But, but in a way, it becomes the justification for keeping the system in place. I heard a comment uh, in regards to that, and that was, uh, so what, 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 what do we do now? And the person responded, well, we go from protesting to policy. And protesting's fairly easy to do, but changing policy? Whew. Now, I know there are some companies I just heard, and I'm sure you heard this too, being there in Washington, D.C., that the Washington football team has chosen to no longer be known as the name that they have been known for who knows how many decades. They're going to That's change fair. their name. Uh, the uh, Atlanta Braves are not going to do that. Uh, I'm trying to read. There was one other team. Oh, oh, the Blackhawks, the hockey team. They're not going Cleveland, to do that. Well, the Cleveland baseball team has also has also. Oh, said Cleveland Indians, right? Oh, they've said they are going to make a change. Well, they said they're going to reconsider. Reconsider. Uh, they, have, they haven't announced that they're doing it, but but generally speaking, when people say that they're they're revisiting it, it usually yeah. means they're they're going to change it. And what's unfortunate is that rather than doing it for moral or ethical reasons, they're doing it, and this is what I'm talking about Washington now, they're doing it for financial reasons. Because if they don't, they're going to lose the monies to be able to put on these games if we ever get to put on these games. Uh, and and that that's something I'm, I, I don't know whether that should trouble me or not. It's like, why can't people just do the right thing instead well, well, of... I mean- you know, being motivated by, unfortunately, the almighty dollar. Well, I think that I think that the you know it, it gets back to what we were saying before. I think what is the right thing is become self justifying. So if we need to do something for survival, in this case, financial survival, we find a way to justify it ourselves. So, so for example, the Washington football team for years has trotted out Native American people who who say no we like the name and, and even though that's a relatively small minority of the native community we, we find those be just like you know you see a lot of people you know trotting out the you know one of the eight percent of african americans who voted president trump to, to support his agenda mm-hmm. as if to say that well you know black people go both ways but they don't because 87 percent oppose president trump and eight percent support him in that particular case and the same is true where um, not the specific numbers, but the same idea is true where, where this is concerned. And, and so I think that, I think that um, you know, 
the other side of it is this is in fact the way people who uh, claim that they like market capitalism, free market capitalism, is the way it should work, which is that the marketplace speaks. If the marketplace says we now are tired of this name, we now think that this name is offensive, um, and uh, and so we don't want this name anymore. Or people say we're going to boycott, for example, a, a, a restaurant like Chick Fil A because um, they they give money to anti-gay organizations. And and the response we get back is, well, this is a this is a denial of people's free speech. But but it's not a denial of free speech. It's in fact the way that the the market, the capital the capitalist market, is supposed to work. Um, you know, people can say what they want to say. But the First Amendment of the United States doesn't say that you have to go into a restaurant if you don't like what that restaurant stands for. Mm -hmm. It says the Congress shall not make a law to abridge the speech of anybody else. And, and so um, and so a lot of it is that people don't really understand some of the very principles we're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting, too, is and I, I, I kind of came to this conclusion back 30 years ago when I was working for the Christian Station. And I came to this realization, um, and I, I did some research on it too, uh, the Second Amendment to the Constitution, dealing with, uh, typically dealing with gun rights, okay? That's right. And that's not right. getting into the conversation about whether or not you should or shouldn't. That, that's irrelevant. Right. right. The, the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all of the amendments to said Constitution were all written in English. And we're still debating over what, the founding fathers meant then we have another document that many many people of faith hold near and dear that was written in other languages and translated to uh, english and mm -hmm. i've often said uh, specifically of the hebrew language that what, what little i know of it in the aleph bet and the 22 characters that each mm -hmm. character has its own legend color and num numerical ranking and vibrational tone and so on and so on and story and when you start putting the letters together into words, a whole new legend is created to words, to sentences, to paragraphs, to chapters, etc. But when you translate those characters into English, that legend is lost. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. OK. And so I'm sitting here going. I can understand that we don't understand what those holy texts say the great wisdom teachings ancient wisdom teachings say because they were written in a, 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 the original language was we don't speak nor do we understand so we have to take the word of the translator that these are the correct english terms which turns out some of them aren't mm -hmm. and yet a document that's barely not even 250 years old we can't even agree and it was written in english and we can't agree on it <laughs> And I, I find that the most amazing dichotomy uh, 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 that 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 I, I can see in in our in our society today. Yeah, well, look, we're, we're kind of, what we miss a lot is that um, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We see them through our interpretation of them. And, and we know that, you know, when you talk about the Bible, for example, that the Bible has been reinterpreted numerous times. The South Africans wrote a Bible in a way that justified apartheid. Um, the Southern Baptists had a Bible that justified slavery for a long time. Um, you know, we could go on and on. Some of the things that were written in the Bible, you know, have been interpreted 15 different ways by 15 different people. And, and the same is true with the Constitution. Uh, you know, people look at the Second Amendment, for example, and we say, okay, um, and I'm not talking about political position. I respect people who, who are gun owners and, and um, you know, I know many of them. I've got a, a 
when my wife and I have a small farm outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia, and there are people there who go hunting and they eat their food and use their food to feed the family. And, and, you know, I completely respect that. So I'm not one of these people who feels to take away everybody's guns. But um, but I do think that we have to recognize that, that what was written about guns and, and about armaments in, in 1776 or 1789, when the Constitution was written, um, was speaking about, you know, had no idea what what repeating rifles were concerned or high speed rifles or, you know, uh, uh, M15s or any of this stuff were concerned. They had no idea about the, the weaponry we have now. And so this notion that we could have been making the determination 250 years ago about what we're dealing with, the same thing true about our voting procedures, you know. We looked at some of the structures that were created at a time when um, when the way we got the votes was that people voted in a ballot box and then they counted it locally and somebody rode, you know, God only knows how many hundred miles to, to, to some place to take that piece of paper that said this is what happened, you know. Um, it's very different than when we have computerized voting where within, within you know, the, before the night is over, we know who won an election across the entire United States. So, so um, you know, the, the problem with any of these kinds of things is that uh, it, they lead to a kind of psychosclerosis, hardening of the attitudes, you know, <laughs> where we can't, um, you know, where, where we, we're so stuck in our point of view um, because it supports us and it gives us the world that we see that we can't. Now, I thought that, that you know, if you look at the, um, the recent end up finding the Supreme Court, the, the finding that found that, that uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation should not be allowed, mm -hmm. I thought that Justice Gorsuch's decision was a really fascinating one in that regard, because as you know, uh, probably know, the decision was based on the question of whether the, the provisions in the 64 Civil Rights Act, which protected some um, uh, uh, discrimination based on gender would apply to sexual orientation. And the argument against it was nobody in 1964 was worried about LGBTQ rights, which is probably true at the time that bill was written. The people who wrote the bill were not thinking about that. But what Gorsuch said was, okay, well, let's think of it this way. If you've got John and Mary who are working together in a company and both of them fall in love with Bill, another employee, and you're firing only John because because you don't think a man should be in love with a man, then the only determination here is gender, because they're both doing exactly the same thing, but you're filing one, filing, firing one of them because he's a man and the other is a woman. So, so that kind of evolution is more, more in keeping with the whole process of judicial interpretation that, of course, has been in the courts ever since the very beginning of judges. This, a sidebar to that would be, um, I am... You're, you know, and you were watching, I'm sure, to some level, to some degree, the controversies over the two uh, Trump appointees or nominees to the Supreme Court who are now sitting on the court. And I just sat there and I just said, this doesn't matter. This is this is you people are not looking at history. Even the Supreme Court justices that Reagan appointed didn't always side with the right wing because they weren't appointed to determine cases based upon politics. They were there to determine cases based upon the law and the constitution. And so when I got, I heard these cases one after another coming down in the last few years with these new nominees, I just sat there and I'm going, Trump has got to be just going out of his mind. These people were supposed to do my bidding and they were supposed to rule this way and this way. And I'm just sitting here going, you people just aren't watching history. Well, the most, you know, among the most famous examples of what you're talking about were back, you know, William O. Douglas, who was appointed by President Roosevelt and, and Hugo Black, who, who 
um, who had formerly been a Klansman in his earlier life, who both became among the two most liberal justices and, and, and <laughs> played a huge role in the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education and some of the other civil rights rulings that, that happened in that era. So you're absolutely right. Now, I, I will say that we have now in our country much more, um, and this is especially from a standpoint of conservative think tanks, much more of a sense of developing an ideological bent to the court. And, and that's being pushed much more than it ever has before. And I think that's not so much Gorsuch, who's more along the lines that you're talking about, somebody who was actually a very qualified jurist who happened to lean to the right, versus Kavanaugh, who was very much of a political um, person who was groomed for that role because of his political and ideological points of view. So, mm. so I do think that we're in a dangerous place right now where the court is seen as an extension of our political system rather than as an arbiter, as like you were talking about, a, a, a nonpartisan arbiter of the actual law that's in place. Because, because the mindset you were talking about leads to, lead, led to things like uh, Anton Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg being dear friends yeah. and having great relationship because they both knew that they were qualified jurists and intelligent people. They viewed the constitution differently, but they, but they valued each other's integrity and their point of view. And I think that we've moved to a whole different level now, which is incredibly dangerous. And if, if uh, I think if you were to go back and look at some of the interviews that they have both had, you'd probably find that uh, they would both acknowledge that the other had taught them things that had Absolutely. shown them things that they hadn't seen before. Didn't necessarily mean that they changed their minds. They might have, but they were that open to uh, that kind of a relationship. And that is extraordinary. And you're right. It's, it doesn't exist today. Uh, and it's, it's, and it's unfortunate. We're talking with Howard Ross. He is the author of everyday bias, identifying and navigating unconscious judgments in our daily lives um we have been we have been promoting on this program howard for the almost 12 months september of 2019 we started promoting 2020 the year of perfect vision getting people to go within and especially during covid19 and the lockdown and and whatever else you want to put on it now we need peace and we need calm. We need to, to relax a little bit and say, okay, I, I realize that this is not the norm, whatever the hell that is. And, uh, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, uneasy about all this. And we've been telling people you need to go, go inside and find that peaceful, calm place. But you also need to go inside and find the insight, the inspiration, the, edification, if you will, even education, because um, listening to that still small voice has been a part of most all of the uh, 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 faith-based uh, uh, philosophies on the planet, uh, whether they be of the main three or whether they be of the others who um, made, they don't have a Ten Commandments and they don't have uh, these other things. It's more, I mean, especially along the lines of Buddhism, um, you're looking for whatever it is that you're looking for. Okay. Would you go sit down over there by the Bodhi tree? Cause the moment you do, you're going to realize, Oh, if I just stop looking for it, boom, I'll have it. I'll have the answer. And that's what we're encouraging people to do. How does something along those lines using and or trusting our intuition help us to navigate through these unconscious judgments in daily life? Well, I think that, you know, that, that this is something that I think people often misunderstand. Uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell um, wrote his, 
his book Blink, his best-selling book Blink, and, and he really talks about this. He says that you know when people achieve mastery in a particular domain, they don't have to think about things. A sense of perspective on that thing is, is really valuable. My, my oldest son is a doctor. You know, he's a he's an electrophysiologist, a heart surgeon, and he talks about. You know, he and I have had this conversation where. Uh, a couple of years ago, he said that certain things happen that he just kind of, kind of instinctively knows um, what to do. Um, you, you, Richard, after all your experience, I'm sure interviewing people, you just have times when instinctively a question pops up to you to ask that you hadn't planned on asking, but at the moment you just know it's the right question to ask. And, and in my profession, I have the same thing. I can sometimes instinctively sense things in different people, but that comes after years and years and years of developing mastery in our in our. Um, in the domain we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is when we trust our instincts, when we don't have any idea what we're talking about. And when we just, you know, think we trust our instincts just because we think that anything that pops into our minds is, is right or smart. And that's where we're dealing with, with narcissism, which can become uh, a tremendous problem. And, and, and unfortunately right now, um, because we have, we've given up on the development of mastery and we've leaned on the, on the instinct as narcissism, a lot of the decisions we make based on that are, are inaccurate. We're seeing a lot of this where COVID is concerned. The science shows us one thing, but we go a different direction because we just feel like it's the direction to go on. Well, people are dying because of that. And, and so we have to re recognize that there are limitations to how much our, this intuition or this instinct can guide us. And those limitations are make sure your instincts are grounded in some sense of knowing what you're talking about. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and uh, I often encourage people to do this because your your intuition, your higher self, the still small voice, it's not going to put you in harm's way. It's there to keep you out of harm's way. It might challenge you in certain instances, uh, but are you open to that? And I myself, uh, and thank goodness it hasn't happened very often. I think I learned fairly early uh, that when I get just a little too big for my britches, the universe has a way of bringing me back down. And, uh, it does, it does, it does, doesn't it? It's right? a beautiful thing. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, I have been open to it uh, for years. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened that often. Um, but uh, I, I've learned from that and I've just decided, you know what? Uh, if I have that, that sense, that feeling, that gut feeling, uh, then I'm going to stay away from that if that's what that's telling me to do. Uh, I, I've even, uh, I've even, and it seemed so innocuous, innocuous. I sent a text and it was transmitted down the line. It wasn't supposed to be, but it was, it came back to me through my employer. Uh, and the next thing you know, we're having a little conversation, but what that conversation I had did have in it was my ability to stand on my own two feet and present my position, whether right or wrong. But it, but and in the final analysis, acknowledge that the general manager is the general manager. And if I'm going to work here, I need to make some adjustments. I need to find a better way to communicate rather than using texts, you know, that can come back, come back to bite you. So technology is is it can be a, a great a boon or it can it can kick you right in a keister. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, but that's one of the reasons why we promote that. Well, technology also, technology also has a particular challenge to it. And that is that, um, you know, an email or a tweet, um, or, or any, anything written, um, 
doesn't give one the same sense of uh, being able to read the tonality of a statement. Um, as my dad used to say, uh, you put an emphasis on a different syllable, you know, um, <laughs> you know, you, you, um, uh, you know, you may interpret something as being angry or defensive when actually it's just an inquiry or, or you may assume somebody's judging you or actually they're just offering an opinion um, because the tonality is different. And, you know, we used to do this exercise when I was teaching communication skills to people where we give people a sentence and have them say the sentence seven different ways and, and you know, with seven different intentions. So, yeah. um, so you could say, I love you, or I could say, I love you. You know, <laughs> or I, say, I, I love you, or I could say I love you. You know, it's like you know, or um, you know, whatever. You know, um, I, it, you can communicate so many different things with tonality, and and so I've I've seen it. Um, I've seen it said that that as many as sixty percent of emails can be misinterpreted in one way or another, and and of course you throw in social media and and these bubbles that we're living in, uh, as I think you referred to earlier, and, and it just all of this becomes you know part of the mess right and, and so one of the things i think that's really important for us to do as citizens of a democracy is take on our own education and that is to not let yourself be put into a bubble and only hear from one side to explore and, and i know i'm not saying you have to go to the extreme so explore the rational people on the other side you know if you don't yeah. want to watch sean hannity or tucker carlson on fox because you think they're too extreme watch chris wallace on fox and and, and you know and the same thing on, on the left you don't want to watch Rachel Maddow, watch somebody who's, who used to consider to be a little bit more moderate than that. But the point is, at least at least don't allow yourself to to participate in your own brainwashing and and, and creating your own echo chamber. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, matter of fact, it ties into an analogy we use quite often on this program in the process of uh, bringing about a new paradigm for a new for the for a new world. Uh, in terms of giving people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true, we use the analogy of a circle. And in that circle, in the center of that circle, there's an event that's taking place. Now, the circle is made up of points. And what I encourage people to do is stand on a point, say at 12 o'clock, for a little while and watch. Then move to two. And then move to four and six and eight. And if you've got the time, 10 and back to 12 again. And then do the odd numbers. And get a different perspective each time of that event that's taking place. I mean, it's been said that uh, 10 people can watch the same car accident. And you'll get 10 different views of that accident. Sure. Do you remember that famous Japanese film by Kurosawa, um, Rashomon? And in which maybe, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a very, very famous film that he made back in the 60s. And the story is um, a, a, a violent incident happens. This woman is raped. And the story, the movie story is told through five different voices looking at it who each tell a completely different story. And you get to the end of the movie and you're like, I have no idea which one of these is true because they're all compelling. They all make sense from the perspective of the teller of the story. Yeah. Um, it's very much the case in, in as we look at life. Like I said earlier, you see things not as as we see things uh, not as they are, but as we are. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why I really have worked very hard over the last three and a half, four years uh, to step back away and, and remind myself, okay, you know what you heard and you know what you saw. You also know you do not have the whole story. Yes. So you cannot run with this in any direction. And especially if it's something that just happened. I mean, we're watching live coverage of a, a, a car chase 
along I-5 or, or uh, 405 in Los Angeles, okay? We have no clue what's going on, how this started, why it started, uh, even how it ends and so on and so forth. We don't know. And yet people, uh, now the media is, is uh, the worst for this because they want to get the scoop on everybody else rather than getting the truth out. They will well, jump. We moved to, unfortunately, we moved to news as entertainment more than yeah. news as information. Yeah, that's and, true. And that means that the most extreme thing, the most exciting thing, the most controversial thing, you know, the thing that's going to trigger the most kind of emotional reaction is the thing that, that we want to have on the news because that's what keeps people compelled. That's what keeps people watching. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'm sure you've heard it too. You know, somebody says, I wish I could just watch something that was just the news. And, um, you know, I wish it was just without all that. I just want to see the news. <laughs> well, we do have that. It's called the PBS News Hour, and almost nobody watches it. That's so, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's there. It's just that, that people don't watch it because they like the pizzazz. Yeah. And, and this is unfortunately the problem is we're more interested in being entertained than informed. Well, as we all know, as we all know, uh, the the typical line that is used in broadcast and, uh, and print media even is, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And I will say that some of the news media has made wonderful strides, whether it's at the end of their newscast or not, at least it's there. And that is they're starting to show stories where people, human beings are helping other human beings. And I would say that, um, the, the upshot in that regard is that at least they're making an effort. All right. And as much as I have heard, Oh, Richard, positive news will never sell. I would beg to differ that people are worn fricking out. Well, I don't know if you know, if you, if you got a chance to watch this little YouTube uh, show that John Krasinski, the actor John Krasinski did, saw, called Some Good News, that he started doing at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, he basically put it out on the internet for people to send him examples of people who were doing nice things for each other. Yeah. And, and ended, ended up being a very popular YouTube program, which he ended up selling for millions. <laughs> on. So, in fact, good news does sell. And I think, and I think that... Um, now, you know, look, the key here, we don't want to go from an environment where we're only seeing the worst to where we're only seeing the best. What we want to go to an environment is where people are seeing an honest reflection of what the day is like for everybody in the world and what's going on that's worked and what's going on that hasn't worked. And we haven't really found that balance. No. Howard J. Ross, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This has been a, a great pleasure and uh, insightful. Um, I, I now am down one grass shack, which is just fine. <laughs> but as I have said many times on this program, this is my therapy. This is part of my therapy. Okay. Uh, I don't have all the answers. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying not to be so egotistical or so, uh, so dogmatic about what I believe. I try to maintain the answer I gave to my sister who was challenging my faith, my personal relationship which is what I thought it was personal and it was nobody else's business. When I said to her, my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today are not my beliefs of tomorrow because I'm still alive. I'm still learning and growing and reading and experiencing and talking with people. And so I don't know what I'm going to believe or if I'm going to believe anything. I love what, uh, what uh, Greg Braden said to us when we were talking to him uh, regarding his book, um, uh, the healing power of belief he said, there will come a day when we will not believe 
we will just know. And one day, if we just go within, we will know for ourselves, and we won't put that on other people. So I thank you for sharing that with us. Howard J. Ross is the website, howardjross.com. And of course, we encourage you to pick up a copy of his book. Uh, also, uh, I believe, um, let's see here. I don't, Oh, yes, indeed. You also have Blinded by the Light of Our Own Bias is another book on the same subject, if you will, uh, that I think we kind of touched upon a little bit. Uh, in terms of uh, what's happening today. Uh, but I encourage people to go to your website, and we will be linked to your website, Howard, so people can go there, find out more about you, the work you're doing, the books that you're writing. And, uh, and, and we thank you so much for joining us, and I'm hoping one day you can make a trip out to the West Coast, or, hey, I wouldn't mind making a trip out to the East Coast temporarily. Yeah. Uh, and we sit down face-to-face and have another conversation because uh, – this is this is fascinating to me because this this goes into so many other areas as well. Thanks, Richard. Look, I've really enjoyed the conversation a lot, and uh, and I'd love to do it again sometime. You bet. And uh, I have three final questions for you. Uh, but first, I want to remind our listeners that uh, if you are interested in more of this, howardjross.com is the website. We are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. Podcasts are at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher. Support for us, gratefully appreciated at PayPal and Patreon. And also remember to spend some time with yourself. may seem like a scary thought, but the more you do it, the less scary it gets. So, if you just do it for five minutes, start today. Do it in five, couple minutes. Not asking for much, because um, your your inner self misses you. I, I I will bet you your inner self misses you. All right, my first of three final questions, and again, I thank you so much for joining us. Number one is, who is Howard J. Ross? Uh, it's, a, it's you know after almost 70 years i think first of all i would say first of all i'm a, a wife and father i mean a husband and father um but that's that's the, my most important role in life is my family and a grandfather um that's most important and then beyond that i, I hope that i'm um a teacher and a healer you know somebody who helps people understand how to bridge gaps between people what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now um, I hope that we can get to a place of mutual understanding, um, a place where we can start to work together in collaboration to create a society that really does fulfill the promise that this one had, and that is a society of equal justice for all. And finally, what is your life's purpose? I think what I just said, which is to create create a society in which we can really fulfill the promise of equal justice for all. Okay. Again, I thank you so much for being with us here on the program and uh, look forward to our next conversation, whether it be via uh, face-to-face or uh, via Zoom. Uh, it's, it's really fun to talk to folks uh, who educate as well as entertain and i love the stories that you've shared and i hope that folks will take those to heart and uh, we look forward to our next uh, get together and i thank you for listening to tell me your story new paradigms for a new world 
We're giving people choices and knowledge of those choices. You are the people uh, to help make your dreams come true. And we are looking for those new ways of living because, well, look, the old ways just don't work anymore. Pandemic or no pandemic, ladies and gentlemen, we need to find new ways of coexisting. And that's what it's going to take. So until our next broadcast podcast, love to love.